0: Where the unknown is the goal, the discovery is the joy, the journey is the destination. Welcome to the ravine, part of Osiris Media, explorations in a fish. My name is Brian Brinkman, co-host of the Beyond the Pond podcast, and I'd like to invite you on a new journey to explore the muddied segments of improvisational brilliance and transgressive discovery that dot fish's near 40-year career. Discourse and debate will be left aside, as the goal here is listening and understanding the steps fish has taken to better communicate with each other and evolve at their own pace without ranking, comparisons, or context like that mysterious radio show you heard on that random station at 3 a.m. while driving through what state am i in the ravine will come and go from your feed but the magic and ambivalence will be sure to coax you in episodes will drop monthly on fridays at 9 p.m. eastern perhaps with more frequency as inspiration allows keep the dial tuned towards the ravine we look forward to you joining this journey in early July, 2020. Let's face it, having a lawn is awesome maintaining it not so much it gets tiresome and expensive and you should be enjoying it as opposed to constantly mowing it that's where sin comes in
1: sin is environmentally friendly there's no watering no use of pesticide products no mowing it's very low maintenance and you save money Sinlaw uses bio-based ingredients such as soy and sugar cane it's made in the usa in the state of georgia the largest manufacturer and installer of synthetic grass. They have USDA bio-based certification.
0: It's the safest and cleanest turf available. Great for kids and pets. You get no muddy shoes, socks, or paws. Professional and certified distributors and installers nationwide. You get a premium quality product. which so is highly durable and UV stabilized.
1: You get your free time back. You can enjoy your yard instead of working to maintain it. And you can have it in your yard where grass will not grow. It's green all year. It's really great for residential homes, playgrounds, roofs, agility, golf. You want a golf hole in your backyard and, and many more projects. So please visit sinlawn.com slash beyond. That's S-Y-N-L-A-W-N dot com slash beyond.
0: Get a lawn you can be proud of all the time. Be proud of your neighborhood. Don't be that one guy in your neighborhood with the brown lawn you could the neighbors gossip about over tea. Or even better, up your short game in a major way. Your golf buddies and your neighbors will thank you. Sin long.
1: Folks, I'm David Goldstein.
0: I am Brian Brinkman.
1: You are tuned into episode 109 of the Beyond the Pond podcast. This is the podcast in which, generally speaking, Brian and myself utilize the music of Fish as a means of getting a listener to listen to other bands. These are usually not jam bands because we love Fish. We are Fish fans. Sometimes the problem with Fish fans is they get a bit myopic. Only pay attention to their favorite band and all of their statistics to the exclusion of all other musical acts on the planet. And that's not cool. We've been trying to fight the myopic from day one. We're continuing to do so.
0: Absolutely. And as you now know, this is part three of The Harder They Fall 2000. The Trilogy. Osiris, the Trilogy. The Osiris Big Three Fish Podcasts, being Under the Scales, Helping Friendly Podcasts, and us, Beyond the Pond. Uh, You've heard from Under the Scales, going in week one of this month, talking about fall 2000. Tom had a great conversations with Andy Gadiel, as well as John Paluska. Uh, Last week, Helping Friendly Podcast had a fantastic conversation with Justin Bruce running through the fall 2000 tour and the end of 1.0, and here we are. And our job is to focus on a specific jam like we've been doing since the very wee beginning of this podcast all the way back in, I think, March or April 2017, and then spinning that off and introducing you to a bunch of awesome music that we recommend you listening to. We're very, very excited here in episode 109. We are talking about a jam that we could not forget. Because that jam is the Phoenix Guy Forget from October 1st, 2000.
1: Yes, the themes that you're going to hear in this episode include throwing it all out there to the bitter end, the ominous transcendence of October 2000, the end of Fish 1.0. And on that note, let's get to the fish.
0: So as we do in all of these episodes, we ask ourselves, why are we talking about this jam? And, you know, it's interesting. We're sitting here right now. Time of recording, not time of release. We're recording this on Wednesday, October 7th, 2020, the 20th anniversary of the final fifth show of 1.0 at Shoreline Amphitheater. And we're looking back here at October two thousand looking back at one of the best jams of the fall 2000 tour. And, you know, in considering what we were going to cover in this episode here, we were thinking, you know, when I listen to fish in fall 2000, specifically October, just five shows, I find that you hear a band in need of a break. Uh, At times they sound exhausted. At others, they sound bored. Overall, they sound like they need some time away to rediscover what it means to be Fish. Outliers, to be sure, but on the whole, I get the sense from listening to Fish at the end of 1.0 that I hear a band at peace with their impending hiatus simply because they know it will give them the opportunity to feel alive once more. And yet, if there's any jam where the band undeniably feels incredibly alive in October 2000, it's in the 22-minute Piper and Guy Forger that pops up midway through set to and stands as perhaps the last truly great jam of
1: 1.0. I concur that with this final week of shows, it generally feels like something's being held back. Like, uh, there's certainly highlights, which we'll get to, and I think October 5th is a reasonably strong show top to bottom. Yeah. But it almost seems like the impending hiatus is in their heads, and they're kind of trying extra hard not to screw things up, maybe at the expense of inventiveness. Or maybe the impending love hasn't bit worried. I mean, it's not like they're sleepwalking through the shows exactly, but there's a little something missing. It's like, you know, the old cliche, not playing to win so much as playing not to lose.
0: I get that feeling, and I think that that's one of the things that makes this jam so special. Um, so this jam emerges from a really fast-paced Piper, and you hear train and Fishman just immediately connect on a groove that whenever I listen to it, it feels so familiar, but like I can't put my finger on what it is. And it's one of those grooves that just seems to pop up in the most hyper-connected jams, the kind that immediately unites the audience, elevates the experience of the overall show. People just start cheering in unison, and Corotta then goes crazy, the band then starts smiling, it's the best. And yet here, the jam, while spontaneous in the moment, is in fact a hidden piece of fish history performed for the very first time. The lyrics of Guy Forget emerge, quietly at first, I never met a man that I could not forget, except for do, do. Guy, Guy Over a rhythmic riff, which feels plucked out of fall 1997, summer 98, and summer 2000. A song that was sound checked throughout 1993, which apparently originated on the rhombus, the only other song other than Divided Sky, and which featured apparently the worst verse that Tom has ever written, with lines like, Would the good Lord save? Or will <laughs> I dance on grave? Which was then used in mock song. Uh, it emerges here in the fifth to last show of the 1.0 era. The placement, delivery, the shock value, it all makes it one of the best moments of the Fall 2000 tour and one of Fish's last great moments of
1: 1.0. So. You kind of go from this hyper groove oriented jam into the song's lyrics. You know, definitely you could hear Guy Forget and you could say this came from Piper. I mean, it definitely has the Piper feel. And you go into kind of a more subdued, highly fall 2000 jam, which kind of hears Fishman settle into some minimalist patterns on his snare. Trey moves over to the keyboard for uh, some close encounters with the third kind jamming. You can really see this on, um, this was actually, there's official footage of this on YouTube because it was the uh, filler on the officially released Vegas DVD of the um, September, was it September 29th show from Vegas?
0: Uh, September 30th.
1: Okay, right. September 30th show from Vegas. Part of this is the, the filler. I don't think you can find the DVD, but it's certainly on YouTube. You can see Trey go over to his keyboard. This is the kind of jam that emerges in the wee hours of the night, some 10 months earlier, and certainly brewed in Japan earlier in the summer. There's certainly some elements of the Fukuoka twist in this. Um, You get in the last gas of fish 1.0. The band is at a whisper, but sort of in the same way as Woko's relatively recent Ode to Joy album, which came out about a year ago, actually. that hears the band sound very alive despite uh, some elements of silence. This is kind of one of the last parts of 1.0 where a fish does sound groundbreaking.
0: Yeah, and from here, amazingly, Guy Forger would only be played twice more. Uh, once in the midst of a rockin' and funky ghost from September 4th, 2011, closing out the very first year of Dick's and essentially cementing it as a must-attend venue going forward, and later, uh, emerging out of a seedy groove from Drowned, on December 28th, 2019, in a New Year's run opening show that was so much better than it had any right to be and immediately challenged uh, 2017, 2016, 2011, 2003, and 1995 for the best 12, 28 shows ever.
1: Yeah, I was at that show and that was indeed a full blown Guy Fourget. I mean, it even says so on the Live Fish tracking. It's given its own track. I mean, the song, kind of by its own nature, is just the verses yelled over whatever the band happens to be playing at the time, so it's of no consequence that it really doesn't sound much like the Guy Forgé from October 1st, 2000. It sounds like a drowned Guy Forgé. And I only mention that because on there's some disconnect on Fish then it says it's a Guy Forgé quote. No! It's a real Guy Forgé. And then, uh, because Fish is feeling frisky that show, it goes into ass-handed, and then Ass handed reprise. Really good show.
0: Really, really good show. Super fun. Um, but in terms of comparable jams uh for this Gey Forget, obviously there aren't a lot of Geeforger's. Uh and as it's clear, uh this Gey forget is quite different in a lot of cases than most others. This is if you Separate the Piper from this. This is about a 15-minute jam segment. We really haven't seen anything like that with other versions of this uh, faux song, if you will. Um, so some comparable jams. We wanted to really focus on 2000 here because this is such a 2000-sounding jam. Um, just running down the list here. We've got the Ghost from May 22nd, 2000. Uh, you remember we, were, we covered this with our good friend Bob Kerr back in the spring. Uh, The next night, the Yamar from May 23rd, jumping into Japan, uh, the Piper from June 10th, the Walk Away from June 14th, the Fukuoka show, really ends with this kind of like tribal rhythmic type of jamming that's very silent, it sounds like just about dawn is about to break type of thing, Um, and then two more jams from Japan, the Down with the Z's from June 15th, and the Runaway Gym from June 16th. Uh, what do we have from Summer Tour, Dave? The Piper
1: from July 12th of 2000. Gigantic Mike Song, also about two days later, July 14th of 2000. Down with Disease, next night, July 15th of 2000. And going forward, have a show that I was at. This is uh, the tour opener in Albany of the fall. September eighth of two thousand, bathtub gin into a fully ambient jam. It sounds nothing like a bathtub gin. September eleventh of two thousand, Piper from Great Woods That is a phenomenal second set. They also open up that show with uh, the Modern Lovers' Roadrunner because they're playing in Massachusetts and they are in love with Massachusetts and Route one twenty eight. Finishing up, Ryan, what do we got?
0: Uh, Darian. 914-2000 cross-eyed, very subdued, quiet cross-eyed coming out of a massive 30-minute drowned. Uh, the Tube from the next night, September 15th, 2000. You hear a lot of page and a lot of keyboards on this jam. Mm. Uh, it's one of my favorite tubes ever. It's so, so good. Uh, the Mango Song from September 17th at Merriweather Post. The Boogie On from uh, September 18th, 2000, in a four-song second set. The Cities from September 24th on David's 21st birthday, and one of the best cities ever played. Such a great take on that song.
1: I was, I mean, I would not have had any way to listen to that Cities as it was happening because there was no live streaming technology in 2000. But rest assured, I, if I was couch touring fish on my 21st birthday, then I was doing it wrong.
0: and then wrapping things up the uh tweezer from uh october 7th 2000 the final show of uh fish 1.0 and the jam we also almost covered for this but we couldn't really ignore the it's a superior jam but that tweezer if you haven't listened to it in a while the last five minutes get super eerie super seedy trey gets on the keyboards it's a really really good jam So in terms of the significance of this show and this larger run here in October, as I noted at the top, if you've heard from Under the Scales interviews with Andy Gadiel and John Paluska, as well as the HF Pod tour overview, by the time Fish reached Phoenix on October 1st, 2000, a tangible and mournful buzz had settled over the scene. Uh, officially announcing in the September 30th second set from Las Vegas what had long been rumored that the band would be taking an extended and indefinite hiatus following the conclusion of the fall 2000 tour. The show on October 1st, 2000, from Desert Sky Pavilion, and the four shows to follow took on incredible significance.
1: So, Brian, your first fish show was in February 2003, correct?
0: That is correct. Okay.
1: I've got five years on ya, so I actually managed to catch a handful of shows in 2000, had some scheduling conflicts that kept me away from as many as I would have liked, especially that summer, so I'm not entirely sure as to the timeline for when the fan base became aware of the ensuing break, but although it was not officially announced into the Vegas shows, I think by the time the band opened that fall tour in Albany, I don't think there was a single fan in the room that wasn't aware what was going to happen. I mean, this wasn't like something Trey had unknowingly sprung on an unsuspecting audience. I'm trying, I can't recall, I mean, whether it was from reading the rumors in Andy Gadiel's Fish page or like a friend of a friend who knew band management, at least I know that when I was at those Albany shows, I had harbored no illusions that there was a chance to be some of the last Fish shows I would see for a while. And you know, for me that was okay. I was a senior in college. I was about to turn twenty one. Most of my close friends were into like bands on like Matador Records and like Sub Pop and Thrill Jockey anyway. I saw the two Albany shows. I had a ticket to see Merriweather Post, but I sold it. And that was because uh, people who went to those Albany shows they'll tell you that driving back from the venue that night, the fog was so thick and so scary that I went like 25 miles per hour down the highway and actually feared for my life at some point.
0: And oh, man.
1: I didn't want to subject myself to another like late night Saturday drive from Central New Jersey to Maryland. So I wussed out and sold the ticket and that show ended up being better than both of the Albany shows. I mean, I didn't see Trey again until uh, I saw a Tab at Greatwood's next summer in August. And I thought that he actually looked like he was having more fun on stage with that version of Tab than he did at the Albany shows. He
0: seemed totally
1: like liberated. Yeah. And that was, you know, back when Tab would play these like ridiculous 25 minute grooves on last two, Mr. Completely. And like Russ Lawton would be like standing up from his kit, with, like a look in his eyes, like, Holy fucking shit. This is what I do for a living now. But, um, you know, that was, uh, in a nutshell, I think it's a kind of a good idea that the band got out when they did.
0: I yeah, I agree. I think, and I just actually, um, I just listened to the entirety of Fall 2000, kind of in preparation for this big project that we were doing. And I'd listened to a bunch of shows within it, but I'd never listened to it in a consecutive whole. Um, and I agree with you. You can kind of hear this somber sort of energy from night one of the tour Uh, my first fish related show was the following summer at alpine valley seeing trey anastasio band Mm. Um, and i agree like i remember i went with people who had seen a bunch of fish in the late years of 1.0 and one of the topics of conversation driving into the show was will trey look like he's enjoying himself more because there was definitely like a subdued sense for the whole band to that fall 2000 tour. And he was all smiles and having just like the greatest time yeah. of his life and seemed just like super energized. So I totally get it. Um, but in terms of this tour as a whole, and in terms of some of the high points I heard, before we jump into kind of a big deep dive on October, um, I wanted to highlight uh, what I would say are the five best shows of this tour 915 um, 2000 from Hershey Park. Karina in set one its One of the most beautiful versions The Windora Bug Has an incredibly cool jam coming off of it And the Piper and the Tube In set two are incredible Awesome like five songs second set 914 the night before Reba, Karini, Susie Drown cross This is Live Fish 3 It's a killer, killer version That I heard was a cold and wet uh, Show to attend the night of But really holds up well on tape uh, 917 2000 from Meriwether, as Dave was saying, this has a really good gin, really good limb by limb. Uh, I believe this is the second curtain with since the 80s. Truck Dust Torture is awesome in this show, and all of set two is really essential. Mm. Um, the August or uh, October 5th, excuse me, from Irving, you got Wolfman's and Sally, an incredible limb by limb. Drowned in see NICU, into Bowie, Haley's into Walk Away, Huge Piper, and a character zero with fast enough for you quotes. And also, what else did they play that night?
1: They played a Neil Young cover. Not just any they, Neil Young cover. They played, come on, baby, let's go downtown for Tonight's the Night. So whenever
0: Fish plays Tonight's the Night covers, which I think they only have two that really spin around their catalog. Yeah. Um, they nail them fucking Albuquerque and come on baby let's go downtown just like fit fit live fish like a glove they should play more
1: and then finally from some of those highlights this is the show and um this is the day after my 21st birthday so this is when Dave was hungover as fuck this was uh September 25th of 2000 from Bonner Springs in Kansas that's interesting drive to go from Minneapolis to Bonner Springs this was um they open the show. Everyone's got something to hide except for me and my monkey. Down and at- it's a jammed out version. Yeah, exactly. It was like seven minute version. Down with the Z's into lizards. Tweezer. This is like all in the first set. And then bug, huge wika groove. Excellent Harryhood. That's easily one of the best shows of the tour.
0: Yeah, that show. That show in ten five were the shows that popped out to me as like. Holy shit, I can't believe I haven't heard these before. Um, So jumping into October proper here. So when the band reaches Phoenix following two nights of debauchery in Vegas, they were exhausted emotionally and physically, but still had it in them to put on an above average show. Opening with a raging first tube, they showcased a funky Wolfmans in the second slot. Later in set one, Llama features a ridiculous bit from Trey where he instructs the audience to pat each other on the head, give out hugs, and make love with strangers, all under the guise of band introductions. Uh, also worth noting that Llama was as near type two here as Llama gets.
1: It's like a nine-minute Llama.
0: Yeah. It's just yeah. like a wild, like, My Bloody Valentine type of like wall of sound.
1: Like, antelope Llama. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Set two flows with precision. Roses opens. Piper, as we noted, would jam into the uh, aforementioned Guy Forget, highlighting the set and the show. From here, we fade into the always-welcome circus before stopping in Camel Walk, Driver, and a seedy Bowie.
1: So three nights later, there's a quick stop in L.A. for an appearance in The Tonight Show. And then they kind of played a tired and not-so-great gig in Shula Vista. I know uh, a few years down the line they would say that Chula Vista knows how to party, not so much tonight. No. So decent set list, and um, you know, but the band kind of seemed like they were ready to like close out the first era. A very good. It's ice. You get a Reba and a solid hood. But if you're gonna skip one show to listen to, this would probably be it.
0: Uh, yeah, it it's it's a show. It happened. Yeah. Um, the following night in Irvine was a stunner, as we noted. Fresh setlist combined with an excellent mini jams in Wolfman's Limb by Limb, Drowned in Haley's. Plus, you've got a hooked up Bowie, Piper, and Zero, as I noted with the fast enough for you quotes. Still, one of the best shows of the tour, probably the last great Fish show of 1.0. And was there anything else notable that happened in that show? Have we forgotten anything?
1: They played a song for tonight's tonight.
0: Oh yeah, 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 of course. They played a Neil Young. They played
1: song. a Neil Young cover. <laughs>
0: Uh, Night One in Shoreline, you've got a weird set list devoid of flow that kind of peaks in the encore with a surprise appearance from Bob Weir, who sat in for inspired takes on Chalk Dust Torture into West L.A. Fadeaway. Really good Chalk Dust into West L.A. Fadeaway. It's a legit segue. It's really, really good stuff.
1: No, it's good. In terms of Bobby Weir sit-ins, if I'm going to listen to one, I'm going to listen to Nashville 2016. But, you know, this was still... Very solid. He wasn't up there just for kicks. He actually, they jammed out a little bit. It was good.
0: Yeah, it's. It reminded me in terms of the Nashville show from 2016 that like when Bob Weir joins Fish, he's not just playing songs straight. Like he's actually going to no. try to push some songs in different directions. It's good stuff.
1: He was in the Grateful Fucking Dead. He knows what he's doing.
0: <laughs> so the 1.0 era then concludes with an above-average greatest-hits-type show, which felt equally downplayed and significant all at once. Opening with First Tube, the band offers a traditional Mike's groove before peaking set one with Jin. Set two flows with precision as Twist, 2001, and Tweezer in a very subdued jam, as well as Bowie highlight the band's progression and peaks over their previous two decades. In the encore, they play the only song that they could have, You Enjoy Myself which ultimately peaks in a gorgeous vocal jam that sounds like an ohm for a band at peace with their conclusion for now.
1: Yeah, I would say this was a solid show where something was being held back. It's also a live fish release, and there's also uh, some pretty recently unearthed YouTube footage of the whole show, which is pretty good, and you can see Fishman during his short-lived, like, wool beanie look. And... I think it's, it's it's interesting to me that there's only four official live fish releases from 2000, and I kind of wish there was more, because for whatever reason, most of the available audience recordings of the fall tour, they're not very good. It's almost as if like all the quality tapers up and left. I mean, for example, the Phoenix show, I know there tends to be lots of like wind issues when they're playing Phoenix, which kind of result in crappy odd tapes, but just would thought that they would be sounding better than they are.
0: Yeah, it's a lot of late summer early fall gigs in the southwest. It's just like wind blowing all the time. <laughs>
1: okay. <laughs> but but yeah, yeah, we want it, a, uh, come on, Kevin Shapiro. Bring some 2000. We want it. We want a Hartford 2000 vinyl box set. How about that?
0: That's what I want. 628 to 7-4,
1: baby. Okay, there you go that'd be incredible and on that note let's go ahead and listen to a few minutes of The Key Forgé from Phoenix, Arizona October 1st 2000 Yeah. ATP listeners, I don't know about you guys, but I could live without fish more easily than I could live without caffeine. I'm not proud of it. There's a literal film over my brain until I swig that first cup in the morning, usually followed by four other cups throughout the day. It's not a cheap hobby. Until recently, I was a Grady's skeptic, but now I am a full-blown believer in the power of Grady's cold brew. Order online and get their famous New Orleans style iced coffee delivered straight to your door. Just add water to their all in one kit and get 36 servings of cold brew for less than a dollar a cup. We'll save you a ton of money, also a ton of time. You won't have to socially distance in coffee shop lines because Grays dispenses directly from your fridge. Already cold and completely customizable for your perfect cup. There's gonna be a literal bag of New Orleans style cold brew in your fridge that comes from a spigot. The only thing that's missing is the second line brass band and powdery beignets. Given that things are getting a bit colder here on the East Coast, there's also the option to brew it hot. Brady's cold brew is independently owned and operated in New York City since 2011. Ready to give it a swirl? Get 20% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code BTP20. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com. Type in BTP20, and you get 20% off. I love this stuff. In fact, I think I'm going to go have some Grady's Cold Brew right now.
0: All right. That Guy Forge was pretty sick, huh, Dave?
1: Ah, I never met a jam I could not forget. This one has Guy Forge. God, that was lame. Forget that I said that beyond the pond audience. Yes, it was excellent jam.
0: I too excellent. have never met a jam that I could not forget except for Guy, Guy Fourget.
1: Fourget.
0: So that jam comes five nights before fish would conclude 1.0. The very next time that we would see fish in the flesh on the stage with Corona's lights playing a show would be December 31st 2002. And uh, that by that point I was super into fish. I had tickets to go and see them in winter 2003. Uh, I remember buying that show it was the very first show posted on livefish.com. And uh, listening to that Piper jam, it's a great Piper to bring them back in. And you hear Trey's distorted guitar tone, which sounds so different from his fall 2000 and summer 2000 guitar tone. And you immediately know, listening to that, we're in 2.0, baby.
1: What was the gag of New Year's 2002? Was it like a snow field during Seven Below? That was like the gag? Yeah, it was
0: snow started falling and a bunch of like snow angels and stuff. Oh, okay. All right. Um, so as I said, this jam, the Guy Forge was played five nights before fish would conclude 1.0 and this jam kind of proves that the band really, at times they were still throwing it all out there to the bitter end. They were going to make a statement with this jam, with a show like October 5th with the great set list on October 7th. And we wanted to highlight some bands that threw it all out there to the bitter end. So I'm going to talk about a band that I featured all the way back in episode two, where we covered the Hampton 97 ACDC bag. And I'm pretty sure I haven't discussed them since. And that is Cambridge, Massachusetts, short-lived indie slowcore pioneers, Galaxy 500. Mm. Guitarist Dean Wareham, drummer Damon Krakowski, and bassist Naomi Yang formed in prep school, but really started playing together while attending Harvard in the late 1980s. The debut album Today was released in 1988 and is one of the absolutely best records of the 1980s. It foresees shoegaze and slowcore and dream pop and the direction of indie rock throughout the 1990s, and it's one of those records that's so forward-thinking it's hard to believe it was crafted by a single band. Songs like Flowers, Don't Let Our Youth Go to Waste, Oblivions, and Tugboat set the tone for indie rock headed in the 1990s and all but guaranteed the sound of at least 10 college radio bands from every university in America since then. The next record, On Fire, was released in 1989 and received a perfect 10 upon reissue from Pitchfork. Described as what would happen if Jonathan Richmond fronted the Velvet Underground, it's a perfect encapsulation of northeastern indie. That's the coolest nerdery one can imagine. Like many late 80s, early 90s indie rock bands, talent is not what defines Galaxy 500, but what made them special was their ability to hang in space and time with each other. You hear it best on On Fire, but it lingers throughout their debut as well as the record in question, their final album, 1990's This Is Our Music. Significantly better produced than their first three records, one has to wonder how the band's career would have gone had their label not gone under and they had the ability to record via the production of their final album throughout their first two. Keyboards and layered guitars flesh out their sound in a way not heard in their leaner first two records. That said, like Fish's Fall 2000, This Is Our Music is the most uneven record from Galaxy 500, and it's clear that the band would serve better purposes as influencers of larger indie rock than anything more. That said, the high points are still high, like the song in question here, the Naomi Yang-led cover of Yoko Ono's Listen, The Snow Is Falling, a gorgeous song, which feels like a direct inspiration to the work of Yola Tango, and low throughout the 1990s so let's go ahead here you're going to listen to listen the snow is falling off of galaxy 500's closing album this is our music
1: I love Galaxy 500. I love Dean Wareham's next band, Luna. Also another phenomenal band. I would also highly recommend to anybody who likes Galaxy 500 and Luna to read Dean Wareham's memoir called Black Postcards, which I think came out in 2005. It is absolutely one of the best rock bios. It is both hilarious and harrowing and interesting, and goes through lots of mood swings. And it's just a very good portrait of uh, like indie rock and alternative throughout the 90s and early 2000s. So, in terms of a band that put it all out there to the bitter end, I'm going to talk about a band that I'm kind of surprised I don't think I've ever talked about in this podcast before. That's Fugazi. We're going to talk about their last album, to date anyway, uh, The Argument, and we're going to play the third song from that record called Full Disclosure. I mean Fugazi are basically the Grateful Dead for DC hardcore kids, so you could have like three podcasts on Fugazi and Discord Records and Ian MacKay, but just a quick background: uh, they were a band that came together in the late '80s when the frontman for seminal Washington DC hardcore acts Minor Threat and The Rites of Spring got together. So, Minor Threat is kind of credited with founding the uh, straight edge, somewhat preachy arm of the hardcore punk movement. All right, so Spring are thought of as the first ever emo band, with their singer Guy De Picciotto would like to weep while howling emotionally charged lyrics over furious riffs. So. Minor threat frontman Ian MacKaye and DiPicciotto, they joined forces along with the rights of Spring, uh, the drummer Brendan Canty, and the bassist Joe Lally to form Fugazi. They put out EPs in 1988 and 1989 that were put together for the seminal 13 songs compilation, and this is where the song Waiting Room can be found, a.k.a. the one Fugazi song you've probably heard, even if you think you haven't heard it. Umphreys McGee covers it for Crying Out Loud, which is uh, a signal of its ubiquity. So, over the course of Fugazi's career, they put out six full-length albums of increasingly inventive, often rather funky, uh, post-hardcore music. Kind of, uh, they became as well-known for their left-wing politics and frugality as their music. Like, they did things like they never charged more than $5 for tickets to their shows, um, all the music came out on Ian MacKay's uh, very do-it-yourself Discord label. They're often kind of thought of as humorless, which, if you've ever seen them interviewed, is entirely untrue. Though uh, some of their records seem a bit grimmer than others. MacKay and DiPicciotto, they trade off vocals from song to song, and the guitars are never less than heavy. But... I'm here to talk about what I guess right now appears to be their swan song, which is The Argument, which I think came out in October of 2001. It's got plenty of the rhythmically challenging post-hardcore songs which the band is known, but it might actually be their most accessible work because of what was added. Namely, there's actually like melodic harmony vocals in some of the songs. Um, The second half of the record has a second drummer and there's even some eerie dub experiment, uh, experiments that caused more than one of my friends to ask me if it was actually Radiohead when I played it for them. So they're already a pretty innovative band, and they were really trying to switch things up to the very end. It results in one of their richest albums in a discography full of them. But because this is a Fish podcast, I've also got to point out that Fugazi put a big premium on their live show. They've released... Scads of official bootlegs available for ten bucks. Downloads on their website. They never used a set list. They always relied on like a song list and hand signals to get through a show. All of which is uh, explained on the quite amazing Fugazi documentary called Instrument, which is in full on YouTube, and I highly recommend you watch that. Many of their last shows included two drummers, which is as jam bandy as it gets, and. I think they've never officially broken up so much as just never got back together. I mean, they all still play in bands. Um, like Ian Mackay just released an album with his wife on drums and Joe Lolly on bass called... Uh, the band's called Kariki. It basically, to me, sounds like a Guy DiPicciotto-less Fugazi record. Um, also, more recently, the Fugazi Rhythm Section has a band with another guitarist called The Mysthetics, which... Kind of sounds like the Fugazi rhythm section with a guitarist who just like plays over them and kind of like wanks all over the audience. Um, Guy DiPicciotto still this production work. They're all busy dudes. They're just not busy with Fugazi. But really, I love this record. I think it was a good way to go out. So let's listen to a little bit of Full Disclosure off of uh, Fugazi's The Argument. BTP listeners, we have an awesome contest to announce. Our sponsor, Sinlawn, is offering listeners an exclusive prize, a portable 5x7 roll of the best quality turf around, it's about the size of an area rug which you can easily cut down in any size. Sinlawn is made in the USA with bio-based ingredients, it's environmentally friendly and highly durable. You can make great use of this roll, even if you're a city or apartment dweller come up with a whole bunch of fun ideas and some of those are bring the outside indoors have an area for your kids to play a spot for you to get the feel of laying in the grass as the weather turns colder and you're spending less time outside works as a grassy yoga practice or workout inside use it as a meditation spot place it below your sofa to rest your feet in the grass while you couch tour or binge watch Shit's creek like i've been doing lately you can easily pack it up and bring it camping for a nice grassy space to hang out at your campsite Easy spot to take your dog out in a balcony or patio if the weather is bad. You just want to make sure you can throw in the rinse every so often. You can even cut it into smaller patches and gift it to all your friends who you could use a nice grassy spot to rest their feet indoors and reconnect the summer. It's also a cool idea for the holidays. I can say from experience, it feels very real and super soft and comfortable on bare feet. Sinlon will be giving away three of these 5x7 pre pre-cut rolls to our listeners. Visit sinlon.com/ slash beyond to enter and explore this site to buy it for yourself or as a gift. Sinlawn can also customize and put it to your space, your home lawn, a commercial space like a playground, or even a classroom if you're a teacher and your classes are starting to meet again. I happen to love hitting golf balls off of them. Again, visit Sinlon.com slash beyond to enter to win deadline to enter is december 9th that is s y n l a w n dot com slash beyond b e y o n d
0: So we're going to talk now about a couple new albums that we have been digging here the last couple of weeks, and we highly recommend that you listen. Uh, When you hear this episode, it'll be late October. Reminder to anyone who is out of the loop on this, as well as those of you who have been following along since I think May when this all started, uh, Bandcamp Friday will be coming up in about 10 days. Highly recommend if you're going to purchase some music from Bandcamp doing it that day, all proceeds going directly to the artists. Uh, These are two records that we would recommend that you guys buy there. So the first one I'm going to talk about is James Schroeder's Mesa Bui. James Schroeder is a guitarist, composer, and engineer from Omaha, Nebraska. He's played with one of BTP's favorites, David Nance Group, as well as Connor Orbst of uh, Bright Eyes, as well as a number of other groups from the Prairie Land. Mesa Bowie is his latest project, which is culled from years of sessions uh, with other musicians, as well as solo improvisations. The record has a free jazz feel to it, while retaining an openness, which matches the open-ended nature of Driving Wild late in the evening across Nebraska, which is actually quite a thrilling experience if you haven't done it before. As Schroeder noted, this record came together over the better part of a decade, similar to one of our other favorite records of the year, Ryan Jules Moss's TV Sun. Schroeder compiled it in between tours and gigs with other artists, adding a bit of ideas here and there, inviting artists in to collaborate, toiling away, chipping a bit off here, adding a bit there, letting his craft guide him wherever to go no matter the time it took. Over time, a, session, a group of session musicians formed, the James Schroeder sextet and the album became a reality. The group played live around Omaha and Lincoln recording as they had as they all had some time and the uh, result here is one of the most fascinating guitar driven records of the year. At times it sounds unhinged and scattered, at others deliberately focused. Through it all, it's an engaging and deeply immersive listen. There's an a moment you cannot stay focused, following Schroeder and his bandmates through acid jazz, noise, rhythmic trance, and open plains Americana. Fans of the back half of the Guy Forget that we played earlier will certainly appreciate this record. Of note, the final track, Fritz and Toby, was recorded as an hour-long jam and then edited down. Parts of the jam can be heard on Cut 4, Seeb's Lament, a driving segment of improv. It feels like the segment of music, the segments of music that I look for on my other pod, the ravine, where you lose all ego and the music just guides you through the night.
1: I see what you did there.
0: (laughs) So I highly, highly, highly recommend James Schroeder's Mesa Bowie. One of my favorite records of fall thus far and, something that will probably pop up on uh, Top Albums Countdown that we're going to do here in a few weeks.
1: Yeah, that's um, a totally cool record. I uh, yeah. I started listening to it yesterday on your recommendation. I think I texted you it. the first song. Sounds like uh like Miles Davis' Bitches Brew Jam, except played by the Keebler Elves. <laughs> and fine by me. So uh, in terms of new albums I've been listening to, this is a uh, a band or a duo called Standards. I think uh, the S is not capitalized. Standards, the album is called Fruit Island. This is a record I only discovered after uh, Dylan Baldi, the frontman of the band Cloud Nothings, tweeted that he liked it. Like, literally, I would have had no idea of his existence were not for that tweet. And now you, dear listener, are aware of it. Um, I also only recently realized that the name of the band is Standards and not Fruit Island with an album called Standards, because seriously, there's tons of records called Standards, and Fruit Island is a cool band name, and if you see the album art, it's like Fruit Island is emphasized. But that's the album name. The band is Standards. And it only consists of two guys. Uh, The guitarist's name is Marcos Mina, and the drummer is Forrest Rice. They play a kind of melodic brand of instrumental math rock that reminds me a lot of... uh, Mid '90s Star Wars Five style, also a little like the sea and cake, and yes, even a little sounding like fish. And kind mm. of what makes the most notable is that Mina is a heck of an acrobatic guitarist. She uses a lot of a lot of finger picking and a lot of tapping for his melodies. I mean, this isn't like uh, Eddie Van Halen, rest in peace, my guy, playing like Eruption. Or with like Umphreys McGee from time to time to wake up the crowd. But he actually uses like two-handed tapping as kind of like a non-showy technique to get his songs across. And he also does it on um, an Annie Clark model guitar, which just kind of looks cool. I think if you go to his website, he uh, has like an instructional video of himself doing it on DVD. And he has like tablature for all the riffs. So I guess he's an educator as well. And uh, Forrest Rice is a very muscular drummer, engages in all types of fills and rolls and rhythm math to get his point across, and they kind of, they don't lock so much lock into a groove as, like, play off of and sometimes against each other. But while they're both definitely virtuosos, all the songs have really melodic instrumental hooks, like the song Starfish, which kind of sounds like the math rock answer to Bobby Fuller's I Fought the Law which was a cool little song before the Grateful Dead adopted it as their how-can-we-leave-the-stage-as-soon-as-possible encore. Uh, the, recording's really <laughs> c- the, re- the recording is really crisp. The riffs are inventive, and the melodies are sunny and bright, as could be expected, from an album named after An Island Full of Fruit. So, yeah, check that record out. I think you'll like it.
0: Dave? Yes? It was another 18 inning loss and a meaningless season for the Cubs. I am reeling today.
1: Mmm. Sounds like you needed some get a little pep in your stepson. A little, little extra pick me up. I do. This is where Grady's cold brew comes in. Order online, get their famous New Orleans style iced coffee delivered straight to your door. Just add water to their all-in-one kit and get 36 servings of cold brew for less than a dollar a cup.
0: So wait, what you're saying is that Grady's is going to end up saving me a ton of money and also time. I'm not going to have to socially distance in coffee shop lines because Grady's dispenses directly from my fridge. Already cold and completely customizable for my perfect cup? There's a literal bag of cold brew in my fridge that comes with a spigot? Do I get a division win this year?
1: That remains to be seen. What the most certainly is a bag of coffee with a spigot in your fridge. Furthermore, Grady's Cold Brew is independently owned and operated in New York City since 2011. Ready to give it a swirl? Get 20% off your first order at gradyscoldbrew.com with promo code BTP20.
0: All right. So, segment two here, we want to talk about the ominous transcendence of fall 2000. So, as we've said throughout here, to our ears and our interpretation, Fish sounds by this point in October 2000 when this Guy happened like a band that's at peace and ready for a break. And there's something, you know, slightly ominous, slightly dark about that. But there's also moments like this Guy forget that are just transcendent. And if you think about the time of, of of in history that this was happening, Fish went on hate. It's like a month before the Bush-Gore election that uh, was one of those early um, kind of just massive moments in world history and U.S. history that kind of helped push us down the path that we find ourselves in now. It was a really dark period, really dark election. A year later, you have 9-11. A lot of just ominous sense of being alive and existing in America that we currently feel right now started at this point in time. And like I said, we're talking about the 20th anniversary here of Fish's first full hiatus in fall 2000. We're talking about darkness. We're talking about this ominous feeling. Well, there's another important, dark, and ominous record that turned 20 that year. This year, I should say. That's uh, Radiohead's Kid A. But we're not going to talk about it here for two reasons. One, we covered it in episode 65 with Mike Lawn Minio. Go check that out. And two, you can hear friend of the pod, Stephen Hyden, go deep on this in four places. And two shows that I edit, 36 from the Vault and IndieCast, Mm -hmm. plus his latest book, This Isn't Happening, and his upcoming interview with Tom Marshall, where they're going to directly compare Kid A to Fish's Fall 2000 tour, and will serve as a bonus episode to our month of Fish Fall 2000 content with HF Pod and other scales. All I will say because I can't not say something about it, is it's one of the most important albums of my entire life. It completely changed how I hear music. The muted tones and ominous zones that emerge from it greatly remind me of Fishers jamming in fall 2000, especially when Trey hopped on the keys.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's lots and lots and lots of places to get some primo, primo Kid A content. So we feel like we don't really need to go that deep on it here. But It's good. It's really good. It's one of uh, the greatest records of the past 20 years. But you realize that already.
0: You know that if you listen to this pod.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, So I'm going to talk about a record that came out one week before Kid A, and a record that I personally wouldn't have discovered without Kid A, albeit I finally got this about a decade after hearing Kid A the first time, and that is The Microphones, It Was Hot, We Stayed in the Water. So, founded in Olympia, Washington in 1996 by Phil Elvarum. The larger project has evolved for Elvarum moving from what was known as Mount Erie before putting out a record this year that somehow perfectly matched the pandemic we're currently experiencing from a quarantine, closed in-house feel uh, the Microphones 2000. Or excuse me, the Microphones 2020. So, the record in question here, 2000's It Was Hot, uh, was Elverham's second album under the microphone's moniker and features a full band backing him That would, which is something that would become increasingly rare for him as Mount Erie became primarily a solo project. The record feels a lot like Kid A without a mag- massive budget. It's raw, bedroom-produced, cobbled together over time. It still retains the immersive, apocalyptic, otherworldliness of Kid A, reminds you of a time and era in indie rock where the concept of an artist choosing to immerse themselves in their own home and their own world was celebrated rather than the norm for literally everyone right now. In this way, it works a lot like other records turning 20 this year in that it feels like an overture to our current world. It's quite wild because I remember being a teenager in 2000 and not thinking that any album from 1980 felt like a preview of the turn of the century. Uh, I'd also like to make the argument here that this record is a huge indie jam record. Most of the songs feel like segues in and out of each other. There's an 11 minute track, the glow, which we featured in episode 27 fish Pandora. There's even a damn track called drums. Not to be outdone. There's a faux cover that everyone knows and loves blue moon, which then seamlessly blends into an Elverum original. It's the kind of record that helped pave the way for New records like the one from Garcia Peoples, Riley Walker, and Dire Wolves. The record ultimately launched Elvorm's career, receiving a 9.2 from Pitchfork and setting him up for a critically acclaimed career where he's received artistic freedom and has in turn released memorable and deeply introspective record after another. We are going to listen here to the opening track on this album, The Pull, which opens with a lightly strummed coastal chords, Elvrum's voice emerges from the heavens before pausing for some serious distortion. It's a fascinating opener which perfectly sets a tone for the entire album as a whole. So let's go ahead here and listen to the poll, the opening track off of the microphones. It was hot, we stayed in the water. <music>
2: start moving. Up on the foggiest day.
1: Okay, hey Brian. Thanks for uh, talking some microphones with us there. So, the album I'm going to talk about from the fall of 2000. One that I still listen to often to this day is PJ Harvey. Stories from the City, Stories from the Sea. We're going to play the first track on that album called Big Exit. She said she thought it would be funny to start a record with a song called Big Exit. So, In the Village Voice Pass and Job survey from the year 2000, it may surprise you that Kid A was not the number one album. It came in at number three. Number one was Outkast Danconia, which, you know, frankly, that's kind of tough to argue with. And there were some serious heavy hitters in that top ten that have stood the test of time. I think uh, D'Angelo's Voodoo was at number six. Yola Tango's Nothing Turned Itself Inside Out was at number eight. The best Eminem album was at number four. And at number two was my favorite album of 2000, and yet one that I think kind of got a little forgotten by history, which is uh, P.J. Harvey's Stories from the City, Stories from the Sea. It was released three weeks after Kid A, on uh, October 24th of 2000, and was P.J. Harvey's fifth album since 1992. And at that point, she's really... I already worn enough hats for a career three times as long. Like, for example, 1993's Rid of Me was her raw as fuck Steve Albini record. 1995's To Bring You My Love was downright elegant and produced by Flood. Like, kind of like a very, you know, mid 90s, almost like a Nick Cave sounding record. 1998's Is This Desire went like a trip hop vein. So, Stories from the City comes out in 2000. That was viewed as the big commercial one where Polly Jean Harvey comes out of the shadows once and for all and is also considered her big New York album because she's, like, crossing the street in Times Square on the cover and some of the lyrics talk about, like, Little Italy and Manhattan. You know how it is. Every serious artist is forced to make their New York album at some point. And <laughs> In a sense, this is entirely accurate, because everything about this record suggests the big alternative rock move. I mean, her vocals are mixed way up front, the drums kick like a mule, everything is crisp. I mean, it could also be like a Pretenders album, uh, like Chrissy Hynde. But because it's still PJ Harvey, it's all kinds of unsettling, at times extremely sexual, and she never does anything halfway. I mean, there's still a song called The Whore's Hustle and the Hustler's Whore. So just because it's a little bit more accessible doesn't mean she's gone soft. And it's timely, because this is the PJ Harvey album with the Tom York duet. The song is called This Mess We're In. And he also adds some uh, ethereal backing vocals to one line. I remember, I think his line is like, every day I dream of making love to you now, baby. And people are like, how is this the same guy who sang on Kid A? I don't know. But he acquits himself very well. So, Stories from the City is by far the most commercial thing she's ever done to that point. I'd say 20 years later, it's probably still her most commercial record. It's still great and still uncompromising and she even opened up arenas for U2 in 2001. That was the only time I ever saw her. And Same. she nearly and she nearly blew the doors off the headliner. Um seemingly embarrassed by this record, in 2004 she put out the comparatively ugly and stripped down uh who her which I'd argue kind of swung the pendulum too far in the opposite direction. I don't think it's terribly good. But she's released a handful of albums since, none bad, and in the case of 2011's Let England Shake, Transcendent. So let's take us back to the fall of 2000 and listen to Big Exit off of uh, PJ Harvey's Stories from the City, Stories from the Sea.
0: Thank you guys so much for hanging in with us here in episode 109, where we talked about the Guy forget from Phoenix, Arizona, October 1st, 2000. And thank you as well for hanging with us as well as uh, HF pod and under the scales. This was a ton of fun to uh, collaborate on a big project with them and kind of go at it with uh, where all of our strengths are as pods, as podcasters, I should say. Um, let us know what you thought about this. If you like this, we might try this again. Um, it was a ton of fun. And, uh, I think we definitely were able to showcase some different eras or some different aspects of a really important aspect, a really important era in fish history. Um, so quick run through the songs that we covered here. Segment one, throwing it all out there to the bitter end. I featured galaxy five hundreds. Listen, the snow is falling off of this is our music. David featured Fugazi's full disclosure off the argument. And in segment two, the ominous transcendence of fall 2000, I talked about the pull off of the microphones. It was hot. We stayed in the water Well, Dave featured PJ Harvey's big exit off of stories from the city, stories from the sea.
1: Just a reminder, you can find us in social media, Twitter at underscore beyond the pond, on Spotify, we have the Beyond the Pond podcast song master playlist, where we try to put as much as we can that's available on in Spotify into one big, unwieldy playlist. Of course, if you like the songs that you hear, Spotify is good for mixes and sampling. And then you've got to go on the Bandcamp and buy the shit out of it, especially now because Spotify alone will not get any money into the hands of your favorite artists. Also, please check out many of the excellent podcasts of Osiris Media on osirispod.com. Leave us an iTunes review. We read them, we love reading them, we cherish them. Any visibility we can get in Tim Cookland is worth it.
0: Absolutely. So, publishing structures, you know, was slightly off here in uh, October. We've got one episode that came out here in conjunction with, um, our buddies over at helping friendly podcast under the scales. Um, we will see you guys here at some point in November. We've got a really cool episode lined up, um, as well as we'll be finishing off our year with our top albums of 2020 shockingly great year in music, uh, from a studio audio standpoint, really sad that I wasn't able to take in a lot of these albums from a live standpoint and hoping against hope that we'll be able to in 2021, uh, as well as those of you who have been following along from the very beginning, we always do a really cool holiday run episode towards the end of the year. So lots to look forward to here still in 2020 from beyond the pond land. Hope that everyone out there is doing well, staying safe, staying at home, wearing a mask, voting, doing all the right things, that we should be doing at this point in time to try to quell the coronavirus on an individual basis within our smaller communities, as well as uh, push forth the larger concepts of of, of Americanism, as well as uh, voting, uh, expressing democracy. It's a it's a really important thing to do right now.
1: But seriously, wear a fucking mask, Jesus Christ. Anyway, yeah, exactly. As of today's recording, we are only one day out from uh, the sad death of Eddie Van Halen. Let's just say that the man was an innovator. The man was a legend, responsible for absolutely turning electric guitar inside out and making some radio classics like Dance Tonight Away, Panama, Runner with the Devil, Jump. Every time one of those comes on the radio, you turn it the fuck up and it will stay that way until the end of time. Rest in peace, my guy. And on that note, hope you've enjoyed this episode. We will come back. We will hold hands and sing kumbaya. We will listen to Van Halen extremely loudly. We will go beyond the pond. The Beyond the Pond podcast is part of Osiris Media co-hosted by David Goldstein and Brian Brinkman, and it is edited by Brian Brinkman.